Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. Moral injury is a term we've come to hear a lot recently. To understand more about this, I spoke to Dr. Esther Murray, a health psychologist and expert in moral injury amongst healthcare workers. I began by asking her what moral injury is. That's a brilliant question because it kind of depends who you ask. So if I just situate it a little bit kind of historically. um, So in the 1990s, a a psychiatrist called Jonathan Shea started talking about it, writing about it. He worked in veterans hospitals in the US. Um, So think about the 1990s, so just think about it kind of historically. So he was still treating veterans from Vietnam in the course of his career. So he'd already been a psychiatrist for 20 years by that point. So they're treating people largely for PTSD, but these are people who are in hospital and then subsequently coming in for lots of outpatient treatment. So these are people who are really struggling to function effectively in society because of their experiences in war, right? And he said, amongst other things, one of the things he also said was about listening, about how the ways in which we need to listen to people, not to diagnose and categorize them, but just to hear what they have to say. And he said, when I listen to these people, even though they've had all the treatment for PTSD, we've done everything that we should have done, they are unable to see a world in which they can fit now because of the experiences that they've had, right? And, and not only the things that they've done, but the things that they've seen and the ways in which they've suffered injustice at the hands of their leaders, right? So, he, and he's written a lot about this and his book's really, really worth reading. So there's a book called Achilles in Vietnam. And it, what's what's interesting about it is the ways in which he talks about failures of leadership, which is something we really need to talk about today. I think time has come to get that out. So he said, listen, I think what this is, is a moral injury. I think what's happened is that people's sense of a right and moral world has been so badly disrupted by their experiences that they kind of can't come back. And it... It happens in two different ways. So so we all have a moral compass and we all come to an understanding of a right and moral world. And we we see this with children, okay? So kids will say to you, but it's not fair. And we go, oh, well, life's not fair, you know. But their expectation is that the world will behave in a certain way. And as we grow up, we learn that it doesn't. And it's still true that we hold our own moral codes as individuals and we tend to share these with our group members whatever our group might be and we know when someone's done something wrong so like in really blatant terms you know when someone's done something wrong because they go to prison say or they're prosecuted or whatever and what she was trying to say was what if not for fear-based reasons so when we talk about PTSD we're talking about fear-based usually threat to self stuff which has completely discombobulated people so far that they struggle to function what if it's not that what if it's more like 
guilt and shame and sorrow and grief for a world that should be, but that isn't. And it's like seeing a world that other people don't see because you see the wrongness of it and you can't be in it. So there's a lot to say about that. And there are so many parallels with people working in healthcare, especially in pre-hospital and emergency medicine, which is where I started out. So quite some years later, another researcher, so Litz, writes about moral injury as well and says, it's really about not just seeing oneself and one's colleagues and, and sort of brothers in arms kind of thing betrayed by a person in legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. It's not just that. It's, it's doing things that are terrible, but also failing to prevent things that are terrible. So, for example, like if you're thinking about war, so it's like destruction of infrastructure, civilian casualties and collateral, that, that kind of thing. But even just bearing witness to it, so being present to it and learning about it in other people, it says it's so transgressed your moral beliefs and expectations that something happens that affects, maybe not function in, in the most extreme sense, so like in a clinical sense, okay? So people can continue to function, but but they will socially isolate. Largely, it leads to social isolation because it's about guilt and shame. And one of the things that's been so interesting for me through the whole time is thinking about we we have all these campaigns to encourage people to talk right what we don't offer I think is enough nuance in the way we talk about talking because healthcare professionals that I've worked with especially in pre-hospital medicine and emergency medicine but also so I've spoken to um, counter-terrorism fire specialist firearms officers so quite a lot of police various if you like so first responders quite generally they don't want to tell the civilians, if you like, about what they've seen because it feels like a kind of contamination. It's like, this is a horrible thing to know, right? And I don't want you to know the horrible thing. So this is especially, and you see it even in the medical students that I first did my research with. So they're young, young people. And they, they would say to me, I absolutely do not tell my mum about this stuff because my mum doesn't need to know it. So they're very protective of the people around. So what we know really is that people who work in certain types of jobs tend to talk to one another about the job rather than talking to people outside the job. Because when you already all know about it, you have a kind of shorthand. So that's why peer support works so well and why we need to facilitate that. So, that I mean, that's a very sort of lengthy definition for what moral injury is but it's trying to sort of explain how it expands out from the personal to the social I think that really resonates in the uh, you know thinking about the doctors that I was working with particularly in the middle maybe of the pandemic that sense of isolation because not feeling able to talk to anybody about what they had experienced for those reasons wanting to protect them um, and I think wanting to protect like their loved ones from seeing a side of them that they were ashamed of, you know, having been part of, I think, particularly keeping families away from uh, dying or very sick patients, I think, has been a massive theme. Yeah, of course, it, it completely goes against what people have trained to do largely. I remember I was speaking to a nurse from who'd been in an ICU and, and that was the thing that stuck with her the most and upset her the most um, because it was the opposite of what she'd been trained to do. 
Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a bit about what impact, we've talked a little bit about functioning, but what impact does it have, um, moral injury, on, on individuals resting with it? The biggest problem is that when we transgress, so, so we all have social rules all the time. So that's how societies function. It doesn't really matter what kind of society it is. But so we have lots of social rules and we learn them as children. And we know when we've transgressed them because people tell us we can read it in their face and uh, we know it. Or, or perhaps we've got a set of sanctions that we've all agreed in and you, somebody doesn't speak to you or they put you away somewhere or they take something away from you or they incarcerate you, whatever it might be. So we know, right? So... All these social agreements are present to us all the time, you know. And so when we've done wrong, if you like, like whether that was something we did deliberately or whether we were following rules that that meant we did a wrongness. So, for example, keeping the families away, that was following the right rule for the right reasons, but it was still a wrongness. And so what happens is that we because we've transgressed, we internalise the shame of that. So we want to repair it and make it better so that we can be forgiven. And m- most societies have got a set of sort of rules and systems. So especially in religion, you see, it's really clear to see the rules by which that can happen, that forgiveness can happen. But in these social settings like working in healthcare, um, there aren't, there isn't a way to make it better. And what the problem with shame as an emotion is it's incredibly sticky, okay? It's really hard to get rid of, especially on your own. And it makes you isolate from other people because there's a kind of contamination idea about it or that you've become something horrible. So you can't inflict yourself on other people. So and you don't want people to see that part of you. Even it's it's kind of nothing to, to do with the other people. It's a really, really internal experience. So people are more likely to isolate themselves. And we know that not being able to share your experience means you are less likely to be able to process it and move on from it and all this sort of thing so we would like people to be talking or writing or doing something to share stuff so that they can move on through it um but but with moral injury they don't and so and the other I think the other thing that can happen sort of at the same time and in parallel and what definitely what happened in the pandemic was so we had individuals who were feeling very badly about the things that they'd had to do because of resources or because of infection or whatever it might have been but then there's also this failure. So our moral kind of moral code, like was much more of a collective or much more of like people who work in the NHS or whatever, that was transgressed by some of the leadership decisions. So some of the decisions made by government, these figures in whom to, to a greater or lesser extent we've placed our trust and who form part of our moral architecture. So we're making choices that were wrong. And then in the individual You'd see, you know, the, all the anti-vax movement, the anti-masker movement, the anti-lockdown thing. So this is social psychology, basic social psychology in groups and out groups, right? So g- these groups are transgressing each other's rules all the time. Now, what that does is to create a lot of anger. We get really angry and feel really resentful, which is also horrible to live with. But, but all of these are moral transgressions of various kinds. And you mentioned earlier about that that kind of failures in leadership. And I guess I think what's been so hard in, in recent months about, you know, people having made decisions that they knew were wrong, but as you said, you know, following the rules that have left them with a wound that's very painful. 
And then to hear that our leaders were not following the same set of rules and have kind of rewritten the rules in retrospect, I think that is hugely harmful yeah. isn't it so it's breaking trust and it's breaking the psychological contract so so we've got lots of psychological contracts all the time haven't we? we've got the one we've got with work we've got the one that we have with government it's like okay well there'll be the ruling of this and you know our part is to do this and your part is to do that and then, then they just consistently haven't done their part and then the idea of trying to say oh I didn't know what the rules were or, or whatever it, it might be when we've got no redress you know we can't just sit down with this man and say hey what the hell, man? What happened there? So that's, there's no, there isn't a system. We're trying to have a system, you know, that the idea of having prosecution on these kinds of things. So we're trying to make our systems work in the face of this violation. And it keeps slipping out of our kind of collective hands, you know, and not happening, not happening, not happening. And, and, and it's really devastating. I'd be interested to see what the outcome will be. Because I guess for me, there's a sense of rage that, emerges from that and I don't know what we do with it but it's, but it's normal though I mean I think part of it is saying listen if you look at all the social psychology and you look at any evolutionary psychology type stuff of course you are angry you are designed to be angry about this that is right and proper so in a way I'd be easier with the angry people it's the people who are numbed out and dissociated from it I think I'm more worried for or, or you know burnt out and cynical end of the spectrum I was thinking, Esther, I saw you talk at a conference in January 2020. It was the last real life work event I went to. Um, And, you know, all these issues felt so live and so relevant then, Um, you know, really high levels of of burnout, Um, you know, particularly working in mental health services, um, you know, real kind of struggle with people not being able to offer, um, you know, good quality kind of evidence-based care and having to really let people down and then COVID came along and I'm wondering whether your understandings or reflections on on moral injury have shifted or evolved um, given the experience of the pandemic. So right at the beginning watching it start like you could see the wave coming in from China and moving across I remember thinking oh god this is it this is what this is this is really happening and it was so awful so you know you know I'm an academic really I do applied stuff but really I'm an academic you know and I have an intellectual interest in this stuff and then it's nice to have an intellectual interest in something and in a manageable way, even though with the levels of burnout and everything, that was something that was sort of manageable and handleable. I kind of knew what I was doing. I was quite useful. And then this thing came in. It was like, oh, no, please don't let it be this. Because we knew not only, so there's people like me sitting around saying, oh, God, we're in trouble here. But also there's lots of research on what happens to people in pandemics. And none of it was applied right at the beginning the systems did not kick in fast enough in terms of staff support and that kind of stuff. But we knew and have known for some time what should be done. So that was awful. That was my, you know, where I felt really hurt and upset and angry and I didn't know what to sort of think or do. So I don't think my understanding of it has changed. I think if I go right back to what Shay said, it's a betrayal of what's right by a person in legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. 
So that's exactly what's happened. So what, what I suppose what is interesting now is what we've got to be careful about is the Sometimes, ways in which. So I'd be interested to know what you think about this as well. So in psychology, we've got lots of words that we use, terms and concepts, ways of understanding, sort of frameworks in which we can explore things with people. And what worries me sometimes in the workplace, and you know, in the NHS, for example, is that words get picked up and kind of weaponized really fast, you know, and their meaning changes. And I've really been thinking about, so in moral injury specifically, there's a lot of contention about, ooh, but what does it mean? And this and this and that. And I kind of think I just don't care as long as I can have a conversation with someone about what's going on with them. And if they call it that, happy days as long as we can get some work done but what we don't want is to reduce our understanding of people's experience and kind of go oh, all right well I'll slap that diagnosis on it and move on it's not a diagnosis it's not a disorder it's an observation you know it's a clinical formulation this guy made about from the years that he'd spent sitting in rooms with people listening to them talk to one another I, th- I think that's the important thing and you've mentioned you know your work with pre-hospital staff paramedics and how are you drawn to that and I'm curious about how those experiences are different to other professionals yeah so when I first started to think about what was happening with regard to the experience of trauma in healthcare professionals I thought it would all be in the pre-hospital world because that's where you see the worst, if you like, in inverted commas stuff. Okay, so I thought it's going to be all the gory accidents, people under trains and RTCs and what have you. So, and I was wrong about that. Um, When I started to talk to people, the sorts of things that they would describe as morally injurious for them, right? So you've got to remember that there is no set type of event that would cause moral injury necessarily. It's, It's a it's complicated but it's largely to do with an interpretation thing so it's very much about how people experience it so what was really disturbing to them were things like taking an elderly person out of their home knowing that that person would never go back there but the, but the patient didn't necessarily know or their family didn't necessarily know seeing people living in extreme poverty not having enough so I had a student who t- talked to me about the experience of treating someone who was almost the same age as him who was in sickle cell crisis and they didn't have enough painkillers for this guy and they had to wait and watching this person in pain and not being able to do anything for him was really, really what stuck with him. So interesting sorts of things the students said, which the more experienced staff didn't say, was that they felt like a shame and a kind of social awkwardness about knowing the trajectory of things. So if they saw somebody with a head injury, they knew roughly what the trajectory might be, but they felt that the family members didn't know and they could they could see a future that other people couldn't see at that point. And that really troubled them. I thought that was really interesting. That kept coming up. But then with the more experienced paramedics and so in the pre-hospital world, so you get teams that are working together, which is very, very experienced, highly qualified paramedics, lots of doctors, anaes- you know, doctors of various kinds, so anaesthetists. And, um, they, their medical competence was such that they, that part tended not to bother them and didn't really matter how spectacular the injury and all the kind of the things that they did or the, the things that might be shocking to, for lay people to hear. It was 
almost always the the very human aspects of things like the the kind of pointlessness. So if you see, because in London you see a lot of knife knife crime amongst really young people, and it was the the kind of pointless dreadful of that. Now there was nothing different that they could have done. So once they get to the scene, there's somebody who's say been stabbed, they can just do the medicine. But the the, the social causes all the reasons that get people to the place where they're in gangs and they might get stabbed are absolutely nothing to do with the doctors at that time. So they're carrying a kind of burden of, of upset that's nothing to do with their direct work, if you see what I mean. So then I got into ED. So then I started spending time in emergency departments and um, talking to people. And, and actually, once again, it wasn't that that was so damaging. So damaging because there's lots of things in emergency departments that are great and staff really get a lot of benefit out of the kind of learning that they can do the teams the teams are extraordinary um the work tends to be quite fast-paced there are as many nice stories as there are sad ones if you see what I mean so um pre-pandemic I mean the, the overwhelm during the pandemic that's changed everything I should think so the the other thing was starting to spend time so there was an anaesthetist who's who I know really well said, listen, will you come and do some of your stuff, sort of wellbeing stuff for theatre staff? So then this is everybody who works in an operating theatre. Okay, so they've often got sort of a a, a psychologist adjacent. So there's often a psychologist in ICU. Um, So there'll be a psychologist in ICU who's there for the families, but also for the staff. So the staff that work in theatre is obviously kind of closely related to ICU because people are often going from there to there with various different units. Um, but the other thing is, it was interesting. So, so a lot of the stuff that we, we did with them was often if you've operated on somebody, you then don't know what's happened to them. So they've come into your theatre, so they've been brought in. So there's, there's a lot of funny, um, not funny, but ruptures in healthcare. Like you'll be brought in, you know, HEMS will bring you in or the ambulance, the paramedics, the ambulance bring you in, um, drop you off kind of thing. Then a team takes you into ED and then you go on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And there, there are movements now to, to try to get better continuity and understanding for clinical staff because it's important for their learning. But this was part of the thing we were talking about with the theatre staff is that they'll see terrible things, terrible, terrible things, terrible injuries, ways in which people have been violent and harmed one another people who've harmed children all these kind of things so it kind of comes in awful is there stitch it and fix it and do all your magic as much as you can do hand them off so that really caused quite a lot of drama also it's physically quite a hard job i think it makes a lot of difference when there's physical you know being whether it's being up all night or standing up for hours and end not being able to go for a wee lots of things or have a drink um so that was a, another really interesting look see so in, in icu so my first understandings of icu were it's a very intense job like the nursing prior pre-pandemic was one-to-one do 12-hour shifts one-to-one and when people are very very sick you don't leave their sides it's really intense you have to really pay attention it must be exhausting to do and then, of course, when the pandemic came in, everything that ICU was was turned on its head in, in non 
non-great ways. And what's your sense of of what the, the greatest needs are now for healthcare staff in terms of mental health? I think if I could wave my magic wand, I'd give a really, really good rest. Because how do you even know what's happened to you if you haven't got time to feel it? You know, that's the thing, isn't it? You don't just feel it. I'll switch it on and off like a switch, you know? Yeah. And I guess that feels hard because we know that that's unlikely for lots of people given... Well, that's right. It's it's not only is it unlikely that people will get the rest that they need, and I know, and there was so much upset about going, oh, and all these people have leave the profession, and I kind of thought, well, good for them, because if it's if they've reached a point where they need to leave in order to be okay, well, good on them, you know. I think there could be a way in which we could have better dialogue or more open conversations about what it is like to be overwhelmed emotionally. So so I think there's a lot, there's a really big perception of like, if I even open the lid on my emotions, they will overwhelm me and I will be destroyed for months and months and months. And, but, and of course that can happen to people, but it isn't always what happens. You know, in medical schools, we don't train students well about feelings. We don't kind of, you know, like the, like crying. You know, we don't talk well about crying at medical school, I don't think, or, or enough. Usually when people cry in a kind of social situation, like a consultation or something happens at work, they don't cry for hours and hours and hours. They just don't. They're likely to just do a bit of crying. And so really, if you're the listening person, like you or I might, we wouldn't be bothered by it at all because it's what we're really used to. So we need to get that knowledge out there that things fall apart, people get distressed, and then they come back up to their equilibrium in order to carry on. I mean, that's how everybody's getting through therapy. If you go into therapy, some of those therapy hours are going to be awful, but you still get through your day, and then maybe you go home and be sad in the evening, but whatever. But it, it comes and goes, it waves, you know? It's like children. We, children are brilliant at this, and we should remember it more that they can be devastated and then 10 minutes later, fine, and then devastated again. And, and that's usual. It's, it's more, it's kinder, it's more kind of real for us to let ourselves flow in and out of our emotions a bit more. Like you don't have to be devastated the whole time. You can be okay some of the time and still have stuff to process. Makes me think of... Um went to recently see the Spider-Man movie and I wept so much <laughs> and came out of it with a very intense kind of grief headache. Um, there's something, I, I guess, I don't know, you know, you know, there, there's loss and unfairness and, um, you know, yeah, a lot of sadness. Um, and I guess we, we're all kind of holding on to, a lot of that in different ways. But that's what's so interesting. That So the idea of going to see a film, so like we know this is a, 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 a known kind of tactic that people use. I listen to a sad song, I'll see a sad film. I will do the thing that gives me a way into crying, for example, or other emotions or anger or whatever it might be, or dance it out, you know. So we have got some mechanisms 
but but what I think what's so interesting about needing to have a mechanism to get us into it, or, or to get completely drunk. Let's face it, like we have a massive drinking culture in this country, so we might go and get hammered instead, so we can feel something. But, but what we need to do with that bit of information, I think, is to say, wow, how did we get so far away from ourselves that we need to find a route in? Why can't we just sit quietly, take a few deep breaths and know? Well, because we've been holding, holding, holding for all this time. Years. Yeah. And I guess there's that sense of particularly, you know, doctors and, and nurses who are doing really intense work for really long periods of time that it feels almost impossible, I imagine, to kind of take moments to contact their feelings um and so it needs to be or people think it needs to be kind of all hold up um or, or kind of kept aside until the point at which it can be dealt with but if we were able to be more fluid yeah and that is because of of, of the work structure so if you've come off a, a really crappy night shift right and, and you've got to go back and do another one so that's it you've got a few hours you've got to try and sleep you've got to eat maybe you see your kids or whatever or your friends and then you go back and do it again and so I'm, I'm sort of saying, oh, you know, feel your feelings, guys, but also really aware that you, there's a huge risk in thinking, oh, but what if I cry for six hours? I haven't got six hours. You know, what if I need to stare into space? And there's been a lot of staring into space going on. You just stare into the middle distance. We talk about that for a reason. You know, we sometimes we have no idea how we feel at all. We're just so numbed out. We just don't even know. And that's when we get sideswiped, isn't it? You know, like somebody will be kind, put their hand on your arm or do something and woof, the tears come. It's terrible. So, but we need to, I think, to get much better at talking about that stuff, the real nitty gritty detail of what's happening with our emotions and the energy that it takes to keep them down. That our strategies are appalling usually in this country. This is a really British thing. Sorry for international listeners. <laughs> Apply this to your media. Like we abuse alcohol routinely, really routinely, without comment, without sanction. So numbing out with food, TV, alcohol, drugs, licit or illicit, whatever you're numbing out with, we we're doing it all the time and we have forgotten to know that it's not our best ever coping strategy and 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 I really mean that with just lots and lots of love and compassion because I do it too you know and it's not a judgment on anyone but it's just information it's just a you know to take a little audit of ourselves like what am I doing even and I, I think there's something about learning and giving ourselves opportunities that we can go through these emotions. Um, I think you, you talked about kids. I think that's what they do. They kind of travel through their emotion to the other side and I'm still catching up and, <laughs> you know, might reach for the glass of wine to get me, you know, over that hump. But we need to get better at learning how to go through and also remembering that we can don't you think i think yeah. that we keep forgetting i don't know why we forget this but we have to actively remember that, like bad things have happened before i got through them again looking at loneliness and sense of isolation and the idea of because we know how important social support is for for well-being the pandemic artificially isolated us all 
all kinds of different ways, whether we are physically isolated or sort of intellectually isolated in our beliefs. You know, in, within families, you've got one who's a massive anti-vaxxer, anti-masker, and then the other ones, you know, don't follow that. You know, our the country, if you think about the UK, it's hugely divided. Wales did something, wow, so much division and isolation. How do you feel the sense of community that you need to feel okay because that's how humans are built under those circumstances and so um I think it's really worth trying to consciously think really consciously like when have I got through a bad thing before who is there for me write them down just do a list and if there's no one then that's information that needs attending to yeah and maybe just to expand on that a bit more if if people recognize that they are struggling with moral injury and that is something that's having a big impact on them what are the sorts of things that can help trying to get it out of your head and into the world is is a really useful thing to do now we've all got different ways of doing it so talking is great if talking's available to you but it's not everyone's way um so writing, if you can write, um, writing with pen and paper is better. I don't I forget the science of why it's better for you, but it is. Um, so if you can write it down, it doesn't have to be coherent. Nobody else needs to see it. It is. There's lots of uh, research that says that expressive writing, so just writing about difficult things, getting it out of your head and onto the page is great for your working memory so it's because you've got to remember that if this stuff is in your head it's kind of taking up space it's taking up your bandwidth you worry about it it's on your mind whether you know that or not so it affects your sleep and your relationships and your ability to be present and when we talk about processing and moving on it sounds like sort of guff you know but just what what I mean when I talk about that is listen if you're very in your difficult experience and it's in your mind and sometimes we have lots of intrusive memories that come unbidden. Um, it means you're not engaging with your life now because you're not here because you're in the sad place with the sad. And there's nothing wrong with being with the sad, but we want you to be able to move through it to a more peaceful place. So maybe that could be the motivator for trying to look at the difficult stuff so talking to the right kinds of people and and we know really if you take a minute to think you know who your safe people are that you can talk to or writing it down um you could write it to someone write an angry letter to whoever you're bloody angry with which probably don't send it um, <laughs> but um if you're really angry with you know, the government, name that person. What you are feeling in the sense of moral outrage is a usual human emotion. It is there to make you to make human groups function well so that we know what's right and wrong and we don't, you know, we do things for each other, not against each other. So it's an, if there's nothing wrong with you at all, um, the grief part of it, the shame part, the things that have happened, the the sense that we we're so hard on ourselves and we we tell ourselves that we're so unlovable, and I usually that's not really accurate. 
that's not really accurate. If you were to check in with somebody, if you can find, think of someone in your life who loves you and have a little think about, have a little experimental try with a little something and see if they're going to hate you and run away. They're probably not going to hate you and run away. Just like if they were to tell you their stuff, you probably wouldn't hate them and run away. So there's something there, I guess, what you're saying about expressing what is going on for you, which sounds like part of what's helpful about that is um, just being able to process the experience. But also something about counteracting the isolation that comes with shame, the connection that that expression can foster. Um, and that I like that idea of kind of experimenting with reaching out and opening up and kind of navigating the safety of that and, and proving to yourself or, you know, gathering evidence about. Yeah, well, and, and that there's trust. There's a world you can trust. There is stuff you can trust. If, do you know, I really think about sort of our non-human counterparts in this. So if if you've got pets, like your pets love you, man. They just do. So if that's where you can safely feel the feelings of love now do that one plants equally if you've got a garden hallelujah go outside be outside dig around be still listen whatever all these things so you can approach so you so emotion can feel like this real tsunami you know but you can approach it kind of sideways and gently and <laughs> around a corner or something by other means of like and also do something for someone the acts of kindness for other people they make us feel fantastic we are wired for them that that's part of our so that's like a repair thing that we can be doing um that's not i'm not saying if you're feeling empty, empty, empty and lost, and so you've got to go and give more when you haven't got more to give. That's not at all what I mean. But it's just a smile, you know. Smile at someone's cute baby or their dog or, I don't know, pass them tin off the high shelf in a supermarket. That's the kind of stuff I mean. Say hello to the coffee person who <laughs> makes your coffee for you. Smile at them. And it sounds like a lot of this is is part of maybe cultivating compassion for ourselves. That's such a hard ask, though, isn't it? Ah! So I have so many thoughts about compassion. So I think it's really important to talk about compassion, and it's very, very important to cultivate it. But you do have to cultivate it, and that means work all the time, every day. As the other thing I think we do with a lot of the mental health stuff is that we we forget to know that it's work too. So I always liken it to brushing, brushing your teeth. Like we, when you brush your teeth, you're probably not thinking about like how toothpaste works and how cavities are formed <laughs> or, or the architecture of your teeth. You're not thinking about that. You're just brushing your teeth because you know that's how you keep them. Um, so what we do for our mental health and our well-being needs to be the same. We don't have to delve into the theory of it every time but we do need to do it every day and the problem with compassion is that and it can be a generational thing it can be a cultural thing all kinds of reasons not everybody grew up with compassion in their lives they are they weren't shown it so they don't know how to have it for themselves or for others 
lots of people working in healthcare are massively compassionate to other people all the time. And, and you see extraordinary love. It's just love. You see just the most amazing love poured out. But learning to show it to yourself is a whole other deal. You know, it's a whole different ballgame. And this is another thing where you need to pay attention to your life. Okay, are you being compassionate? Are you doing it for other people? Do you ever do it for yourself? What are you saying? What thoughts do you have? You know, we talk about how we talk to ourselves inside our heads. Do you beat yourself up all the time? Would you ever speak to anybody else that way? That's a pretty good marker. I had a friend once who said to me, I told him something, I was upset, and he said, I think your worst enemy would struggle to speak to your, you the way you speak to you. I was like, oh, gee. <laughs> so have a word with yourself in the nicest possible way but small small so they don't have to be big things i think people would just be amazed by just what one kind thing it it disturbs me that you if you see a lot of advertising things on the television or wherever social media they act as if the kindnesses we need to show to ourselves need to be sort of material. They need to be really specific things like bubble baths or whatever. Do you know what? When you need a wee, go for a wee. You don't have to answer another email before you go. Just go. If you are hungry, eat. If you are thirsty, have a drink of water. If you are, I don't know, cold, put a jumper on. This is showing yourself compassion. So it's not some airy like box of chocolates in a bubble bath. In fact, the box of chocolates may be counterproductive. Yeah. And it's so interesting to hear you say that because I imagine, you know, I can't imagine anyone saying to someone else who needed a wee or was thirsty or hungry, no, you can't. Just hold on a bit more. (laughs) We do it to ourselves all the time. And what does it even mean? And I know, so so there's loads of people listening to this, loads of people, in healthcare. So we're going, hey, Esther, I can't go for a wee because I'm, you know, I, there's no one to cover me while I do. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So if that's true in your workplace, and I know it's true in lots and lots of workplaces, let that not be true in other parts of your life. So when it's you making decisions about you, you do the kind thing for you. And maybe we could think now about what we could do in our teams um, or in organisations to kind of combat moral injury. What do we think we need to do? So I think in in terms of leadership, um, there are ways to be a great leader in difficult times, she says. Like, I'm not anybody's leader, so there's this very much in the theoretical realm here but <laughs> I've read about it and, and written about it quite a bit but they ha- they do not have to do with having solutions this is not about having solutions this is not about being the great fixer this is about being a fantastic listener and a communicator if you think about a team you know you've got a team to run and decisions need to be made and some of them are really hard decisions and they've been made for really specific reasons but that doesn't make them comfortable at all so being able to communicate effectively about difficult decisions why they're difficult what ethical scenarios might need to be thinking about or talking through you know how can we find a way through this together and and we're not 
looking at feeling good necessarily. We're looking at being okay, somewhere in the middle, you know. Um, listen, 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 really listen, not to fix, just to hear. Because a lot of the time what people need is to be heard. And often your, your team, so showing, you know, with there's lots and lots of um, evidence about uh, what makes people feel great at work. And, and so to be valued at work, to be seen as a competent person, to have a sense of autonomy, to feel belonging, these are the things that really help people feel great at work and to, to mitigate the awful, to remind the group that they are a group, that their values are still shared, that they are still part of this by for example like with with regard to looking for support or compassion I said take your breaks if there's a public kind of rest space that's for staff go and be in it so that staff sees that senior people are using it so then other staff will use it that's proven there's lots of research to show that's how that works say when you don't know communicate clearly communicate frequently accept that some things are bad and difficult, um, that resources are short. And it's not about saying, hey, we haven't got resources, so I need everybody else to do that bit more. Just say we haven't got the resources. That's the end of that sentence. And then and then we'll do whatever needs to be done. But, but what we're not doing is quick, sharp, let's fix it. So, and in teams, it's hard to be kind when you're, sad and hurt because we're trying to defend ourselves from being sad and hurt especially at work we don't want to walk around work tears running down our face in some workplaces that that's definitely possible but it's tiring it's tiring to be around other people's emotions just as it's tiring to be around our own emotions so what we bring to our team is the work that we've done with ourselves which is the learning to be a bit kinder, go a bit slower, be a bit gentler. Just these are not normal times. So maybe sort of second guessing the, the snap remark or the joke or the whatever flip thing. Gent, tiny bit gentler. It doesn't take any longer to do that. It, I don't mean be humorless. I don't mean that. But a little bit of kindness. And and kindness, I'm not. It's not really fair to just say, "Well, be kind," because that's another of these phrases that gets banded about. What does it even mean? So maybe it means changing the pitch of your voice. Just you know, when you get really stressed out and you maybe get louder and higher and whatever, when something happens. So if you drop your shoulders before you talk to someone, then you're going to speak to them from inside your chest, which sounds calmer. It sounds nicer really tiny things and what you do for others you're doing for yourself so the more you notice your your own stress and your own unpleasantness or whatever however it manifests the more you don't do it to them and you don't do it to you and there's links there I, I, I guess with that cognitive load you were talking about that if you're carrying uh, and, and working really hard to not be thinking and feeling about difficult stuff it is hard to have the bandwidth to notice and to respond and sometimes you won't notice sometimes you will miss it and people will be really sad and you missed it it's not always your responsibility it's okay we're, we're in a system together not just all these endpoints we're, we're all connected in this big sort of web thing and I'm curious about you said you know that 
at the start of the pandemic, you know, oh, I can imagine that frustration of kind of having a body of, of research evidence there about what should be done, what could be done to mitigate the disaster and it not happening. I'm wondering where we are with that now, whether there's a sense of kind of post-pandemic understanding and what needs to happen now for people. People periodically have written, hey, let's do this now stuff. And it hasn't been able to stick for all kinds of complex reasons. So... I think what will really be true and what I hope is really true is that there'll be more of a kind of grassroots movement. I know some of the senior people in various hospital trusts have talked to me like, about like, do we need to do a kind of truth and reconciliation type thing? Do we need to air it? Everybody needs to air their stuff. And it's difficult because it's dynamic. You know, this is a wicked problem. So we need to treat it as such and we need to see it as something that's dynamic, that, you do one thing, it affects the rest of the system. So my hope is that there will be more of a grassroots understanding of what needs to be different. This is once again, you know, but, but this is, it sounds like it's saying to the individual that like you have to do the work. I don't mean it like that. I mean that the work is shared, but that I cannot see signs from government that there is going to be, you know, anything coming there (laughs) but when we share the work through the system by listening to one another so that each part of the system can represent its own needs and concerns and so on and so forth and we see how we all impact one another you know like so just for instance corridor care completely disappeared early in the pandemic all those years in emergency departments with people going oh yeah sorry man there's nothing we can do about this ah i think there is all of a sudden, bish, bash, bosh, gone. People built whole new departments, like overnight. Unbelievable. Just amazing. You know, they were creating these extraordinary sets of resources out of nothing. Amazing. And we know we can do that. We we know it's not sustainable, but there's so much we can learn from all of that. And what do you think, you know, if if there was one thing or you know if the government were going to listen um what would be on your kind of wish list in terms of supporting staff with the kind of burden of moral injury that that people are carrying i think they should say sorry i think the first thing (laughs) selection of people i'd like to invite to leave their jobs you know Uh, i think they should say sorry make yourself bloody useful go and do some work ask staff what they need i suspect they need more staff maybe they need better infrastructure so that there are nice places to go for a wee and change your clothes and offices with windows you know so then any kind of sort of therapeutic interventions which are lovely like well-being interventions are fab and they're fun and it's lovely but you've got to be in a place to receive them haven't you Mm, mm. and you've got to trust where they come from yeah too right and be paid those need to happen in paid time people don't need they don't be coming in on their free time to do that stuff that happens in their paid time thanks very much so yeah it's a revolution i'd like a revolution (laughs) yeah 
And I think that that thing, as you're saying, particularly about moral injury, about people saying sorry, um, you know, for the people who have held the power and have hurt us by transgressing their side of the bargain. Repeatedly. And that is how you make repair. That's a socially accepted way of repairing relationships is I am sorry I did wrong and then maybe there's reparation in other ways we, we get people to step down from their jobs all the time when they've transgressed so that is a, a well-known mechanism you know I just not that hard guys and I know you've written a book Esther can you tell us about the book well, so the book I co-edited a book, so so I've written a chapter or two in there. So it's a it's about the mental health and well-being of healthcare practitioners. Um, but it's it, the title's a bit sort of dry, but but the contents is about. It. So it's written by people who work in healthcare, whether they're paramedics or nurses or doctors of various kinds, and so as psychologists. Um, and it's about the stuff that they've done in their organisations to try to improve well psychological well-being so there's there are also a couple of personal stories in there about experiences of recovering from ptsd which they've got as a result of their work so it's very much a book written by healthcare professionals for healthcare professionals sounds brilliant definitely um put details of it in the show notes labor of love and it came out in the middle of the pandemic so these people clinicians were writing their chapters during the pandemic so amazing amazing work really thank you for listening If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, Take good care.